Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to R.J. Bell's Dream Preview. Weekly winners from his Wise Guy Roundtable. Broadcasting from the pregame.com studios in Las Vegas. Here is R.J. Bell. That's right, and this is a special. I am not in the studio because I blew out my ankle, but it's kind of more in my foot edition of the Dream Preview. But boy, oh boy, are we getting ready. This is the preamble. This is the appetizer for next week. Next week, in studio, Ken Thompson. In studio, out of Houston, A.J. Hoffman. Fezzik me. It's going to be an extravaganza. Tuesday, we're taping around noon. And then we'll have it out either late, late Tuesday night or by Wednesday morning, crack of dawn. So we're excited about that one. Then the week after. So Sweet 16 round, in studio, Diamond Dave Esler. Some call him Uncle Dave. Today, I'm at home, and I'll tell you a story about, you know, get kind of getting in shape a little bit, but it ain't easy, as they say. And Fezzik in the studio. And then we've got sound from Diamond Dave. Some call him Uncle Dave. Also, AJ. AJ's got some fascinating stuff. Secret motivational issue teams. These are teams you think, oh, yeah, they're motivated. Maybe not. Fez piggybacking has two himself, right, Fez? I do. Pretty good idea I came up with. Very good idea. Teams that look really good that um, we probably don't want to bet on and we probably want to bet against, RJ. And I I just love the idea that everyone's ascribing motivation to a team if they really don't have it. Also, we're going to be talking about, well, obviously, and news just broke today, taping on Wednesday, the NCAA tournament, no fans, literally, except for close family, et cetera. Fez, you have a way, and I love it. Anytime there's a pandemic, especially, I, I want to try to make money from it. <laughs> Gonna, you got some ideas on that. Also, a formula that allows you to play smartly some conference finals games over and some under. And some, eh, you pass. But this is a clear up arrow, down arrow approach from Fez. Free picks, best bets. Fezzik, like Andre the Giant, undefeated in the XFL. And another XFL pick. No, you don't have to pay for it. Unfreaking defeated. Dave Esler is going to give us a uh, dark horse in the NCAA tournament, one he thinks can do some damage. And the hitman in the XFL. Him and Fez must be talking. And after the best bets and everything, because this is a lot of college, obviously, we're going to touch on some NBA stuff. But we're putting it at the end in case you're not an NBA fan. Lakers, LeBron, MVP potentially. A lot of conversation there. Brooklyn fired their coach. I think... It is a bad sign long-term for the Nets. And then the Rockets from small ball could do it to, ooh. All right, Fezzy, Wezzy, 
Let's start with the secret teams. And we're going to start with AJ's got three of them. You got two of them. When I say secret, what do I mean? I mean there's a secret lack of motivation. Motivation seems obvious and evident, but it's not. First up, AJ says Florida State is a team like this. I'm not super high on this Florida State team because I I typically look for teams that have an alpha dog type guy, and I don't know that Florida State does. They they have a lot of of solid players and not really a guy I can see taking over a game. But it's gotten them a long way. Number one seed in the ACC tournament. That means they they won the conference uh, in the regular season. That's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I'm just not a buyer on this Florida State team. Okay, first team with secret motivational issues, Florida State from AJ. And, RJ, one other thing about Florida State. Normally we might be concerned of, hey, Florida State doesn't win the ACC tournament very often, and here they have that opportunity. But because Florida State won the regular season ACC, they already have a title. They already got a belt. And because of that, I think the tournament is less important to them. Yeah, it's always dangerous to ascribe motivation. Like, I mean, these are kids. I mean, I just can't. It just seems weird. Like, you're so analytical, and that's why you're so good at what you do. I don't know if you've uh, hung out with many. 20-year-old alpha males lately, Faz? Not lately. No, not ever. (laughs) So the question, you saw him on TV. Sure. Bruce Jenner and such. But the question is, (laughs) that is, I mean, you really think about that. You know, we can, you know, obviously it's been a fast evolution with a lot of trans stuff in, in our society. But the idea that, you know, at the forefront of that, in a way, you'd have to say is, in the last 40 years, as uh, masculine, you know, the decathlon gold, right? That's a masculine thing. So I guess in a way, it's a great spokesman for the movie, you know, saying, hey, you can't tell a book by its cover in a way. But anyway, I'm just thinking back to your era, right? You probably were, did you run down the block, Fez, thinking that you were like Bruce Jenner throwing the javelin? I don't recall it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Now, it would surprise me greatly if you even knew the Olympics was on. So let's think about this. You would have been like, what, 11, right? Sure. Yeah. In 76? Uh-huh. Sure or correct? I'd be 13. <laughs> so when you say sure, you're just lying. I, 12. 12 during yeah. the Olympics, yeah. All right. So that would, like, you were, I mean, the centen- or the bicentennial, Bruce Jenner. You would have been right in the center of that if you were a normal kid. Yes. And what was the truth? The truth was I was already starting to study my chess books a little bit, <laughs> listening to the Cincinnati Reds on the radio in my bedroom late at night. Well, at least I, hey, there you go. Alone at night with the, the Reds. You weren't listening. You were, you were a big Red Machine fan. Oh, yeah. Who was the first baseman? Quick. Tony Perez. All right. That was pretty quick. I'll give it to you. Huh. All right. I'm surprised. Last thing, uh, Mackenzie and I were talking, and Mackenzie actually did these interviews or at least, you know, produced them, whatever you want to call it. But he made an interesting point in the NBA when there is a team with deep rotation where they play that eighth guy, that ninth, more than the average team. It's a big advantage in the regular season. But in the playoffs, the tournament, NBA playoffs, it's a conundrum or let's say a dilemma in a way, which is do you keep doing what you do? And if so, you've got lesser players. By definition, you might have a good eighth man, but he's not as good as your seventh man. That's why he's eighth. Do you play as deep as you typically do? 
And if so, you're playing lesser guys to no real advantage because rest isn't a big issue in the NBA playoffs. Or do you change your rotation, which means your better players are playing more and the rest isn't important, so hey, why not? But now it negates one of your strengths, your depth. So I think the irony is that during the conference tournaments, depth is the most important thing. These kids never, ever, never play this many games in a row, the ones who advance to the semis and the finals. I mean, holiday tournaments, you get a little taste of this. But, Fez, I mean, some of these teams are playing, what, four games if they go all the way? Yeah, it can be up to five in the ACC, uh, and that's just un- unprecedented, yes. I mean, it's unprecedented to play three in a week. Sure. Except for the rarest of occasions, right? Mm-hmm. So, depth is humongous in the conference finals if they're using the rotation fully, you know, right. It is almost irrelevant in the NCAA tournament. So team two, and we're going to alternate. Faz, you got, oh, look, the Kansas Jayhawks. Yeah, so KU has wrapped it up. They are not just a one seed. They are the one of ones, clear-cut number one. They haven't lost since January 11th to Baylor. And because of that, I don't think Bill Self and KU really it's going to prioritize the Big 12 tournament very much now, at what's all. Hi- what's history say? Because we have – a ton of instances of KU winning the conference. Yeah. And, under South. And unfortunately, I don't have those specifics, but I do. So let's do this. McKenzie? Yes, sir. Uh, let's look up. I, I think I can't. I think Kansas missed one year, but every year that they've won the Big 12, which would be almost every year with South, and if it were a missed year, it was last year, and I can't remember, because the year before, they almost missed it. I think Texas Tech was doing really well, but they surged. If I remember. So share of or Big 12 outright. And then just we're going to just read a list. So effectively, if you get Kansas's results in the Big 12 tournament, it's pretty much going to be uh, under South is what we're, we're looking for. Let's see if Fez is right. But go ahead, Fez. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense that when you've got all these other teams have, oh, maybe I can move up one spot in the seating, but it's unlikely. Here, Kansas is An absolute locked-in. They have nothing to play for. And the fact that their form is so good right now with a long winning streak, they oftentimes talk about how maybe a loss at the very end of the year going into the tournament would not be a bad thing for the team. Huh. I think if they could forfeit the game, it makes sense. It's just but when I hear about a – like a loss isn't a loss that you artificially create, though, right? You want – I mean, when they talk about – the value of a loss with a really good team like that, it's usually, and correct me if you disagree, or tell me if you disagree, but it's usually an example of, oh, they're favored by eight on the road, they take the team a little bit lightly, and it's like, see, it's good to burn your hand on the stove to see that, look, if you don't prepare, you don't try, you can lose just as easy as anyone. But saying, you know, because really, let's think about this. What is the anatomy of a team not playing well in the tournament by design. Like, let's say you're right about Kansas, and they in South wouldn't mind a loss. How does he orchestrate that? Well, he could not game plan as much for his opponents during the conference tournament and just leave it, roll the ball out there and see how his players do, and then he'll have things he can work with them if they do wind up losing the game. So does he tell them that there's going to be a lack of game plan? No. Don't you think they're going to notice? I don't know. Back to those 19-year-old kids, RJ. Not sure they will. Well, you demean people, don't you? (laughs) Because, I mean, really, you're doing it in both directions. 
these are like basketball savants, some of them. They understand basketball. It's what's funny, right? We all decide we're going to glorify certain knowledge, right? Like how in the hell does it matter what the capital of Nebraska is, right? I get it. We all want to memorize things as kids because that shows discipline or whatever. I don't know. But when's the last time you used that piece of knowledge? Never. But somehow if you if they asked one of these kids that and they said, you know, in some voice it doesn't sound like yours, if they said, I don't know, you'd be like, oh, see these kids nowadays, <laughs> right? True. And I'm pretty sure most of these Kansas kids would be able to game plan a game better than you in basketball. No doubt. So I, I just – I'm not saying this isn't the case because I'm the one that came up with this idea for the segment. I'm saying I think we always got to try to – Make it object. It's too easy to keep things vague, right? So I'm I'm kind of intrigued. How I think one thing you could do is self come in and say, "Listen, guys, we're gonna play hard, but we're gonna play deep in the bench, right? We're gonna give you guys about ten minutes in the first half, and after that, we're going deep, man. We're gonna get some time for these guys, and if they win, all the better. And now, Ajar, you're not gonna win. You know, I hate. You know, to me. I think whoever's on the court, whoever's on the field, whatever it is, you better play hard. And I think a coach's way to affect the outcome is not play his guys, his A guys as much. But we don't really see much of that, do we? Like when we do have these games that we feel like the team could have won, but they didn't put their full effort in. How often is that about rota- you know playing guys who don't typically play? I don't think that's very often at all. I think they keep to their rotations that they normally have been playing. Hmm. You know, next time I get to interview, uh, yeah, I'm going to think about who I should talk to about this because every year there's like a list of questions a coach could really answer. It'd be good if we had like even a monthly on the national show because you know they're getting something and we're getting to pick their brain. Uh, Mackenzie, how far along are you? I'm ready. Um, so in Bill Self's 16 years at Kansas, he won every year the regular season championship. So, so that streak year. is still going on? Except no, his, except his first year and his last last year. Okay, when you say last year, you mean not this year? Yes. Okay. And so, Go of, ahead. Of those 14 times he won the regular season championship, he went on to win the tourney seven times, lost two other occasions in the final. Which if you get to the final, let's agree with this, Faz. If you get to the final, you're trying to win. I agree. Because you're already playing that last game. Why not get the championship? Sure. Sure or? Absolutely. I mean, what good does it do to make me play? I'm going to play three games regardless, and now I'm going to lose in the championship. That makes no sense. You see how sure, though, is kind of like when you said sure about the lie. Sure implies you're not really buying in. So you can see why I asked the question, right? Yes. All right. Sure. You wanna, <laughs> if you're going to lose, you don't want to lose in the finals. I think that's important to say. So on one hand, you could say, well, if he's the best team 14 years and he only wins a conference tournament half, it kind of validates your point, I think. But it also, though, the the uh, the variance in conference tournaments would be a lot higher in regular season, right? Because you got a bunch of games assigned the regular season. It's one and done in the conference tournament. So I wouldn't expect you to win it every year that you win the conference regular season. But half seems a little short to me. Yeah, just a little bit. Just to put things into context, I know that I saw one bookhead. Will Kansas win this year, the conference tourney? And I think I saw minus 150 for them and the field plus 110. Now, is that something to bet here? 
I think that, that so. Seems, that seems to get right at this. Yeah, I think so. I think the field plus 110 has value. And maybe you can hedge out a little bit. Let's think about that. So let's say you say no, and then you get to the finals. You actually could bet Kansas at that point, right? Yeah, and you could lay. You probably have to lay minus 160 and eat the vague if, if they get to the finals. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to hedge out fully. I'm just saying mm-hmm. in a way you can mitigate. Because I do believe the finals, this factor disappears. I think that's really a strong point that you're making. Yes. All right, sure. Now, <laughs> good stuff, McKenzie. And next up, AJ with his second team. And this team, not followed by the casual, casual fan. But if you're a basketball fan, Creighton, you know they perform well. AJ is not so sure they're motivated here. Let's listen. I think they're very primed for this. Creighton's a team, unlike Florida State, they are not deep. They are 343rd in the country in bench minutes. And now they're going to be without Marcus Zegarowski, who's their, their sharp shooting guard for the Big East tournament. He is having his meniscus surgically repaired. They're hoping that he can be back for the NCAA tournament. But for a guy, for a team that only really rotates about seven guys in, he, that's a big loss. Creighton's currently on the two-seed line. If they win their first game, they'd match up against a winner of Butler and a red-hot Providence team. And I think the committee would look at that, and they would look at Zegarowski's absence, take that into account when they grade that game. And I don't think they punish the Blue Jays much for taking it easy in the conference tournament to try and be healthy for the big one because uh, the, the Big East, as we know, a very physical conference. It's a grind to get through the Big East. And for them to have, have finished this the season number one, uh, that says something about them already. It, it would make a lot of sense for them to take their time off uh, and, and use it to get healthy versus trying to hoist a trophy at the end of the conference tournament. Creighton is is almost all guards. They run basically a four guard lineup, so it's not going to change. Uh, the guys, the guy that will probably see the most uh, bump in in time from this would probably be a, a freshman named Sharif Mitchell. Uh, it, he's seen limited time off the bench this year. That's he'll probably he'll probably see some time in Zegarowski's absence. But he, it, this is a guy. He's a second team All Big East. It's not a guy that you can you can easily replace. Marcus Zegarowski. He's he's one of the best shooters uh, in the country, and they're going to need him to uh, to be out there. Forty-two percent shooters don't grow on trees, and they're usually not sitting on your bench. Now this is interesting from AJ because on one hand, with Florida State, we're saying deep, deep, deep team, maybe too deep for the tournament, but that's not going to help him in the conference tournament. And here's why: in this case, the lack of depth is the issue. And you might be saying, "Well, wait a minute." RJ for Creighton, everyone knows the guy's out, so the line's adjusted, right? But think about our basic premise when it comes to injuries. Our premise is for a game or two, the other team steps up. Oh, RJ hurt his foot? We'll step up, right? And then today it happened straight out of Vegas. Matt, McKenzie, they were killing it. Now, me being injured, I still killed it, but okay. We all did. <laughs> but the fact, of, the fact of the matter is, it's pretty common for there to be this cycle. Injury. Uh-oh. Public's like, no way can they win without him. Other team says, guys, we can let them say that about us? Let's step up. Step up. Good performance. Public says, huh, maybe that guy isn't so important. A couple games later, the public is back relatively high on the team that still has the absent player. And the team's like, man, this is it's coming in every morning at 530. We're for a day or two, but come on. 
and then that's the ebb and flow. Fez, would you agree with that? I do, and this is something we see in all sports where that the fallen star goes down and all of a sudden the team responds. You're like, hey, they're almost as good, if not as good. They don't need him, and then reality sets in. But here's the thing with Creighton. If you don't care, max care, let's call it, about the tournament conference, then are you going to really put that Herculean effort in now? Or are you going to say, we got to build an excuse? Our guy's out. And thus, you get down eight, maybe even 12. Do you fight back quite as hard? Do you think, let's rest up? And I do think that's part of the psychology, is if the game's competitive, it's going to be, they're not going to try to lose at the end, any team, I don't think. But do you fight back with, all, do you take every charge? It's those, like we talk about motivation in the NFL. It's not that they're not going to try. It's do they make a business decision here or there? Or they may be out an extra hour the night before. Those are the factors we're trying to ascertain here. So, so far, A.J. had Florida State, secret motivational issues. A.J. also with Creighton. Fez, Kansas, now your number two team, Michigan State. Michigan State may well not care that much about this Big Ten tournament. Let's talk about this Michigan State team. Number one preseason polls, and they underachieved. They were not playing well. And then their play improved. And I frankly, RJ, I was saying, you know what? Izzo and company may want to step it up in the Big Ten tournament and show everyone that they are indeed a contender. But you know what? They've already done that the last five games. This Sparty team is playing great basketball. They won at Maryland. They won at Penn State. They beat Ohio State. They finished the year with three straight wins, convincing wins over ranked opponents. And all of a sudden, Michigan State looks like they're solidly on the three line in terms of their seeds. Everyone knows, when I say everyone, most people consider Michigan State right now to be the class, indeed, of the Big Ten. And I just don't see Michigan State and Izzo caring nearly as much about this Big Ten tournament as the Big Dance. Mackenzie, give me some – let's not worry about Michigan State where they finish. Just under Izzo, Michigan State's performance in the Big Ten conference tournament. Okay. I This one feels thin to me because really what I hear you saying is they've won enough. Now, I do agree a team that's solidly three seed or seeded is a prime candidate, a prime candidate to maybe take it a little, uh, not max care about the tournament. And the reason being three, four, you know, not a huge distinction. Do you somehow slip into two? Yeah, it's like a distinction without much of a difference. Whereas if you have a chance at number one, like even if it's an outside chance, I think these teams play for it. They want to be a one seed. There's a celebration of those four teams. And you don't think Michigan State, and again, I'm not a bracketologist, no chance at a one? Zero chance at a one. Unlikely to get a two. And I agree, RJ, even putting that on your resume, that you were a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, that kind of has some value moving forward, I think. And I also think teams that are around 12 or 15, you know, the last at-larges, obviously the bubble teams are motivating. We'll talk about them in a minute. But I think there's different points where, like, in the irony of ironies is if you're around a seventh or eighth seed, you really want to win a couple because you don't want to play the number one team in the second round. It's a great point. That 8-9 line is the death line, right? You'd rather do worse or better yeah, in Exactly. Ways. That's what's interesting. And, I, you know, it's not such a science. It'd be interesting. Boy, I, bet, I wonder if they ever thought about this. Like, you know how the, the – um, college basketball committee comes out with their rankings. 
What happens if just two weeks before the conference tournaments, so two weeks of the regular season left, they came out with one bracket? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Mm. Right? Because it would get remind everyone it's two weeks away. You know, someone should just listen to my pod for the marketing. I mean, tell me that wouldn't be the lead. We talk about that about 45 minutes on Straight Out of Vegas, won't we? All we talk about in college football is with all these rankings week by week. And, yeah, we would, it would absolutely be the number one lead. I know. Hmm. All right. We got one more team in the state of Michigan also. I consider this an odorous school, but I'm not – I can make money betting on them or against them. Michigan from AJ. Normally, the the coaches that are more likely to to choose this rest over uh, over overrun sort of approach are experienced coaches, guys who feel comfortable at where they are where they're at. But I I think Jawan Howard is is not your typical first year coach. I, I think he feels pretty comfortable where he is, and I think Michigan's happy with what he's done. In uh, the Wolverines, they've been a roller coaster this season, and and basically you can take a look at the last month. And it encompasses exactly that. They had a five-game win streak that included a win over Michigan State and a couple tough road wins at Rutgers and at Purdue, places that not many other teams in the conference have won. So they follow that up by losing three of their last four. And health, particularly the health of standout wing Isaiah Livers, has kind of been at the root of a lot of their issues this season. Michigan 6-6 six and six in games that he either missed or left early with an injury. Michigan will get Rutgers in the first in their first game of the tournament, whom they swept in the regular season. Uh, so it wouldn't shock me if they didn't go all out in that game. So if they, if they took two out of three in the regular season against Rutgers, it's not like you're going to hold that against them, really. Uh, if they do get by Rutgers, they'd have a date with top-seeded Wisconsin. There is, Michigan's sitting at a sixth seed now. I can't picture them falling much further than seventh. But they're a team that wants to be healthy going into the tournament. They really need to be healthy going into the tournament. And this makes them a prime example of a team that will be helped more by rest than a deep conference tournament run. Yeah, first point, the kind of coach that's willing to even contemplate this is going to be one that's pedigreed, that's secure in his job. In all fields, football, as a sport, basketball, and in business, and the analogy in business is, are you a public company? When private companies talk about why it's so good to be private, they say, because I don't have to manage to the quarter. What does that mean? It means that there's quarterly earnings and a penny over, stock goes up, penny under, stock goes down. So you got a decision to make. This is going to long-term in three years be a humongous payoff, but... It's going to make us fall short of our projections net income-wise this quarter. What do you do? Well, most public companies, that is a major – I mean, just think about it. Doing what you know is right, what you know is the best decision, has to be uh, weighed against other factors. How bad is that? It's horrible. You look at Belichick. He makes decisions. Um, Benching – what was that? Malcolm Brown? Was that his name, Fez? Or Butler. 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 Yeah. Um, Belichick not only benches his supposed best quarterback in the Super Bowl, they end up getting scorched, torched, and doesn't ever reference it or answer it. That is power, baby. Belichick does what he thinks is right. Now, that can lead to egomania. That can lead to making decisions you think you're above the rules of you know best practices. Yeah, maybe. But for the most part, being free to do what you think is right, if you're good at what you do, 
is a good thing for the performance of that organization. So some of these coaches have that pedigree. Others don't. I think that Howard would be a, a pretty rare example of a younger coach that does. So, AJ, secret motivational issues. Don't automatically think these teams are going to be motivated. I think in general, almost all of them are the first game. Because if you lose that first game, it's, it's, it becomes a narrative. You lose a second game, it doesn't. I mean, I think that's such a key point. Lose one, the first round, oh my gosh, what's wrong? And they got too much time to think about it in a way. So I think they play hard the first game. If anything, I think these teams you look to play on the first game because they're looking to make a statement so they can leave. Like a, let's say a singer at a rehearsal is uh, can only do half the rehearsal. They're going to want to like hit some high note at the end and say, all right, Costanza style, that's a wrap. See you at the tournament. Last thing you want to do is limp through that first round. And I think if they do limp through their first game in the tournament, they're more inclined to play hard the second. So in general, this doesn't apply, in my opinion, to first round matchups or first game for this team. Sometimes there's buys or whatever. And I think it needs a pedigreed coach. AJ has Florida State, Creighton, and Michigan. Fez has Michigan State, Kansas. Closing thoughts on this topic, Fez. Just that I love your thought about, hey, if any of these teams kicks butt in their very first game and outperforms expectations, that's probably the time to really step it up and bet against them their second game. You know, that's a different angle I didn't think of as clearly, meaning I'm saying avoid the times they do play a close first-round game, avoid them in the second round, thinking, when I say avoid, avoid fading them. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you're saying, hey, if they especially play well, we have two advantages. One, they're prime potentially to concede to some degree. But number two, the public just saw a dominating performance of a team they thought is has reason to play hard anyway. So it seems like you might get a little va- extra value fading. Exactly. All right, I'm RJ Bell. This is Steve Fezzik. We just had AJ. We got Astler coming up. We got the Hitman coming up. First, though, we should have led with this. I guess handicapping is so important. This, this NCAA tournament in front of no actual fans, you know, essential personnel, as they say. What's your, uh, Fez, we'll get to the handicapping real quick, but what's your thought as a fan? Wow, as a fan, that's a perspective I don't think of very much, <laughs> but I think the fans are going to get cheated. I think it's terrible. So would you, you think, I mean, it's terrible. Anytime something bad happens, we can call it terrible, but sometimes it's the best choice. Do you feel like this is the best choice? Gosh, you know, there's, whenever there's this much... If, un- if only you had your own opinion talk show. There's so much un- uncertainty about this corona and what the implications may be. I think when in doubt, be cautious. Okay, see, this is proof positive we don't add it. We're leaving that in. All right, give us how, how can we... The question, I whenever there's a tragedy that is even a, uh, tangentially adjacent to sports... I think does Fez, Fez have a way to exploit it, to take the other people's tragedy and put money in his pocket for things he doesn't need eventually, like $800 like uh, slow-cooking crockpots or whatever. I'm, I'm guessing you got a, some elaborate kitchen gear in that kitchen of yours, don't you, Fez? I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do, all right. Okay, so... <laughs> That actually makes it even worse, exploiting tragedies for unnecessary consumer goods. Like, if you were, like, feeding yourself. But who am I to judge? 
because <laughs> I'm right behind you usually. But I can say, hey, he's the one picking, and I don't even understand why he's picking. I just bet Fezzik, right? So I kind of have plausible deniability, which is nice with you. You know what's going on. Exactly. Well, huh? All right. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> here's the question. How do we exploit this? How do you exploit it? I mean, and I follow. There's a couple of things I want to talk about, but first and foremost, unders. I really think this is going to compromise the offenses for two reasons. You're going to have these empty arenas, and there's going to be no noise. Less energy in the arena, I think, is going to translate to less pace of play with the players, and obviously fewer possessions means less scoring. Agree. Second reason I like unders, empty backdrops. Anyone who's a shooter knows you like to have a nice, clean backdrop when you're shooting, especially threes, and you like familiarity. So if you're in a big, cavernous stadium or arena, and you're looking up at a completely empty arena, that's something that you are just not used to. You are out of your element, and I really think it's going to compromise the shooting, especially the three-point shooting. Because of that, I think three-point shooting will be lower as a percentage. That will help unders as well. So a couple things. I, I agree with the backdrop issue but not on free throws. I think that not having fans, you know, yelling, waving their hands and all that would probably help on free throws. You agree with that? Yes, that makes sense. All right. Now, here's the thing I wonder. What color backdrop would be the worst? Hmm. Because you think about it, usually you don't know unless, you know, a home team does something very specific. You know, like wear white or whatever. You don't know what color the crowd's going to be, and thus they're going to be randomly dispersed in a way, you know, with the team's colors heavy, I would say, if it's a home game. But the question here is what color are the seats? Because now they're empty. And it strikes me there's a certain color backdrop that would be more difficult. Part of me thinks it would be the rim color. Like imagine if the seats were painted the same color as the rim. Now, this is a fascinating discussion. So a red or anything close to red, like an orange, would be much more difficult than, say, a clean green background, which I know that baseball players love to hit into a green background. So that is very interesting. Yeah. So if if we want to talk about some on-the-ground research, look at the venue seat colors. And uh, an open discussion here, Matt or McKenzie, well, I mean, because Matt, this basketball is his, his, his sport he loves, like city kids typically. What would be the background? I guess, like one of the things that's when they have the transparent backboards, they've always, you know, talk about uh, that's harder because you don't have that solid background. But what would be behind? I guess it's just you're trying to sight up the rim, right? I mean, it's really ultimately about the rim. Yeah, I think you're trying to put whatever's behind the rim out of focus in your mind. And thus, if the rim and the background are blurring, then it's the opposite of it. What's out of focus is the rim in yeah. that case. I'd be curious to see what they do with the lights in the space. So you're saying they might do it differently than a regular game? I, I'm curious because if there's nobody in the stands, why would you illuminate them? Mm. So you're saying if they're not illuminated... I think they'd want to because they want the TV to show. This is going to be a novelty. Yeah. They're going to want to accentuate that, I think. Because if it's black, it actually would help shooting a ton, wouldn't it? That's what I would think. You know, he's got a good point there, Steve. 
I mean, if it's blacking out, it's almost like it's not there. That is a good point. You know, this is one of those where you almost— uh, would, Finally, a TV background does us some good. You'd, you'd love to see—take notes on the first couple games, that first four in Dayton, and see how that's going to—how the players are going to react to it and get the confirmation of, you know, that they're really struggling. Or are there some other factors that are going to help them? You know something, Matt? Do me a favor. Uh, we had a former producer do this, and he just had a great feel for it. Where being a national show, um, you know, the, the NCAA is you know more willing to answer questions. They have a you know, sp- there's, uh, each team has a sports information department, but this would be I think more NCAA based. Get a hold of the Fox guys. What's our contact? You know, what's the best way to get a question to the NCAA? The question is going to be the lighting, because in my in, and we could start a little saga on the show that we're trying to get the answer. Because if they end up black, you know, are they going to, you know, the question is going to be, are they going to light in the same way they typically would the stands? Okay. And, you know, this will be a learning curve for us on how to get these questions answered. And it's also be interesting. Absolutely. My gut feeling is there won't be a uniform way that each venue will decide. But once the NCAA, who knows, we might wake them up to this. Huh. Interesting. Any closing thoughts on this? No closing thoughts on the totals. I did want to talk about why I think that some underdogs might be less attractive, RJ. Continue. All right. In 1992, I attended a game in Dayton, Ohio, between Kansas and UTEP. And initially, the crowd was for— Congratulations. The crowd was for Kansas because there was about, oh, 1,500 Kansas fans, and there were no UTEP fans. And then the game was close. And then the second half, the crowd turned on Kansas— and it was a crazed UTEP crowd because it's just human nature. If you're the if you're neutral, why root for Goliath? Root for David. Root for the underdog. And so I think a lot of these neutral sites where there's a clear cut underdog, that that crowd backs the underdog. And I think that's part of the reason we've seen dogs do so well over the years in the NCAA tournament. No crowd, no extra edge there. See, now I disagree with that in the following way. And maybe I shouldn't say disagree, but I think that you got to get more nuanced. I think the odds of an underdog pulling the upset goes way down. Because the time the crowd's involved is if it gets down to eight or six with three or four minutes left, right? Yes. But I think the chance of a favorite extending a lead is actually less, too. Because that so lack of energy is going to play both ways. The underdog is going to give up easier, which means pace-wise— which means the favorite gives up easier. I think taking the air out of the ball is going to have another meaning, meaning it's going to be more extreme than we ever envisioned. Mm. And thus, I don't think big favorites extend the lead. So I kind of, I like, I, I'm less inclined greatly to play underdogs on the money line. That's a great point. So you think maybe less variance by yeah, I think, not I having think the crowd. It, the, dyna- the dynamics, like in audio, I think this gets crunched down. I think there's less extreme results. And I never play ever, ever, never play uh, teasers in college basketball. But if there was a fair odds, I would say uh, low variance. They're going to crunch around the number more, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And how often do you see like that 10-point favorite and their lead gets cut to four and the announcer goes, and, and North Carolina wants to talk it over. And you just see the disconcerting looks of the players for, and the crowd's going nuts. Rooting the underdog. I, I think you're right about the rooting in the absence of it. It's just when do they root? 
They don't root when they're down 19 with four minutes left. Right? <laughs> Unless they got money on the game. <laughs> well, you got a good point, actually. So to recap the concepts we've landed on, favorites won't have the crowd's energy to keep the pace up late, so they likely won't extend leads, or they'll extend leads less than typically. And the big underdog, once the game's out of reach, probably doesn't fight as hard, and thus it evens out and it just becomes very flat. Because this big favorite doesn't have any great urge to slam dunk over these guys. You know, it's like, it's going to be like, all right, no moss. And that hurts the favorite, big favorite betting. But I also think it hurts the underdog on the money line, especially in that if they were close, a 12-point dog, four-point game, four minutes left, usually that crowd who doesn't have necessarily a rooting interest sometimes, some of them, going to root for, as you said, David. So... I think it actually affects favorites and dogs in different ways. And, Faz, it sounds like you agree. I do. Excellent summary. Yes. Well, no, I, I innovated the concept. <laughs> I didn't summarize. I innovated. Excellent innovation. I invented in the moment. <laughs> Ex- uh, you, you know what's funny? I mean, I really have done deep study on persuasion. You use, like, every sinister technique in the book to demean the other person. And I don't even know if you know your – if you knew it, I would almost appreciate it. I think it's just in your blood. I think you're instinctually just want to try to, you know, knock the other person down so you seem taller. And I'm not even aware of it. That's even worse. Oh, well, but we can't believe you. Whatever you say, we can't <laughs> believe you, right? You can believe me. Would you tell us? I would tell you. You're saying, you know, RJ, it's true. For the last seven years, what I've been doing <laughs> is been trying to tear you down – Bricks at the foundation stop. You would have said that to us. No. Okay. So you just lied about not lying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next topic. Must win teams. We talked about secret motivational issues. This is the other side. Woo-wee. They are going to try hard. And there are scenarios that they do try really hard, these teams. No doubt. The question is, does the line account for it? Because that's what's hard about gambling. You don't have to just be right. You have to be right and contrarian. Because if the if you're with the majority and the majority's right, no money to be made there. You got to be right when a lot of others are wrong. Fez, you think there's times must-win teams are adjusted for not only enough but too much? Yeah, absolutely. When everyone says, "Oh, this this team is the last one in or out on the bubble," and it gets priced in on the side big time and more often than not, I would say it's getting overpriced on those teams right on the bubble. And we see that in the um, NFL playoffs a bunch or, or coming into the playoffs, must-win games. Now, if all you did was fade those must-win teams, you would have done fine. Uh, and these are ki- – and what's the theory behind that? The public knows about it. So there's a premium and there's nerves. And to me – young kids are going to have, be more susceptible to nerves than professional athletes in the NFL. So I think in general, if a team's on Joe Lenardi's list or whatever, and listen, we're not going to try to do bubble stuff. It, it, what we pride ourselves on, we don't do, do daily fantasy. We, we do what we do best. We do what we think we're world-class in. Go to ESPN.com if you want to see where the bubble is any given minute. I don't, I don't even know who to recommend amongst the bubble guys. Now, I think there's a second group that's not bubble teams, but must win teams. It's when a got to win the tournament or there's no chance 
He said, Godfather, no chance, no chance. It's Mr. Waltz. He hates... Oh, okay. <laughs> Acting lessons, singing lessons. I was going to make this girl a star. And more than that. <laughs> he goes, she was a great piece of ass and I've had them all over the world. <laughs> That's funny. I had them all over the world. It's like, you know, various types of pizza, you know. <laughs> I've had it in Milan, Paris, Beijing during the occupation. I don't know where that came from. All right. <laughs> yeah. Some obscure comment got Matt laughing. I just wondered what the Beijing occupation was. <laughs> Nothing. That's the point. I wish it was, though. It sounds it, awesome. It does. That's the point. <laughs> If I would have said the occupation of 23, it would have been even better. Yep. The winner of 23, see? <laughs> I had some script ambitions. I never wrote one, but thought about it. <laughs> now, now you've got it. I will say this. Me and a good buddy of mine, uh, he was at my wedding. He, Tom, who runs sales with, uh, or is the operations guy sales might be the way to say it. He, his brother... Both of them were in my wedding. I was in school with his brother, and Tom's a little younger. We wrote a whole Simpsons script once, like in 93. It was freaking hilarious. I mean, we only had one script in us, like 22 minutes, <laughs> but it was good. I got to see it. Oh, my. You know, that's interesting, actually. Uh, the, the idea of dredging that up. Okay. So, anyway, we went from no chance, Godfather. So, the no chance teams, you can act like a man. Now, that was a good imitation right there. It was. I mean, it did. It was right on. I somehow got the register of, of Brando. Yeah. Well, waiting. I do have cotton in my cheeks right now, so that's helping. I'm waiting for On the Waterfront. <laughs> that's too uh, I mean, the contender. I tell you this, though. On the Water. Any movie before Bonnie and Clyde. And there's been a lot written about Bonnie and Clyde as the first modern movie, which was like 68, I think. Yeah. Oh, yes. And <laughs> the... It just has a different feel to it. It feels stay. It, it feels stuffy. It feel you know, and even the great ones do. You know, even Casablanca feels formal in a, a lot of ways, and that's a great early movie, obviously. But on the waterfront, Brando came in with the Lawrence, you know, Sir, Sir Lawrence Olivier crap, and was just like natural. And obviously, he was a great, the great. Some would say. I mean, you look at the actors that really had an influence an impact post-1970, it was all just students, or not students, but aficionados of Brando, yep. right? Starting with Pacino and all the Godfather people would just worship Brando. And Brando was only like 47 or 48. I mean, they made him look older at the time. Remember, he was in Last Tango in Paris right around the same time, which he was playing this lover who was, uh, you know, let's just say um, he was uh, ambitious and... Uncon oh, he, he was open. He was flexible. And he was like supposed to be like a stud, right? And it was the same year as, if I'm not mistaken, as The Godfather. If, if, it, weren't, if it wasn't, it was after The Godfather. So, and then you go even Dustin Hoffman. And then you go into the next generation with Sean Penn. I mean, method, method, method as the acting school. And Brando was the guy. But on the waterfront is like, it's almost like this guy came from outer space and is doing something from 50 years in the future, and no one else is doing that. And it's so wild. Like, the last thing I'll say is, 
the scene where he's in the bar with her and, and he doesn't know where to take her, right? She's a girl that is just another level of class and he's not that level, but he aspires to it. He sees her on a pedestal when he wants that. You know, not so much to, you know, soil it, if anything, but to rise himself up or raise himself up. I don't know. But he, he doesn't know anything but to take her to a bar when they have kind of a quasi-date, which is kind of a call to taxi driver and the porn thing, right? Yeah. And they're sitting there. She's a little uncomfortable, but she's taking him in, and she says something that's, like, very highfalutin, but not in any way, like, condescending, but just showing her spirit, her purity in a way. And he looks at her and says, I can't remember the exact phrase. It's something like, you are bananas or like something like you're, you know, you're, you're a wackadoo or something. And it was just like he was admiring it, but he couldn't not respond to how different it was in a derisive way. But he almost, it was derisive. It was, you know, kind of saying, it, ah, that's BS. But it was also like admiring it too. It was like, how can you do, like, look where we are. And how can you be this way? Because really his take would be, I'm this way because of where I am. I, I know no, nothing else. And then she comes in and is like transcending her environment. And he can't fathom that. But he so respects it. Yeah, and he's got that innocence that is his downfall in the end, right? Yeah, well, I think the innocence was him thinking that, that maybe he wasn't. Like in a weird way, he knew he was limited by his environment, but he thought maybe he could be pulled out by her. And ultimately him rebelling, you know, spoiler alert, him, but vague, him rebelling against the system as it existed, you know, was, is it innocence? Because I don't think you can be in the middle of the system that long and be innocent. I think she got him believing there could be another way. So he was, you know, born again, innocent, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So could have been a contender, Matt. Could have been. (laughs) All right. Back to the scheduled programming. Uh, what'd you think of that, Fez? Interesting? It would be more interesting if I had seen the movie. I think you need to see it. <laughs> you know what we need to do? We need to get a list. This will be off-season stuff. Write this down, Mackenzie. A list of the 50 most vital movies. Matt and I will come up with it. Like, if you're an American in 2020, you got to have seen these movies. An American man, male. All right? And then we'll over-under guess how many of them Fez has seen. That will be stage one. Then stage two, we'll vote for the five he most needs to see, and we'll pick the five, and then we'll do a poll on it, and then we'll have a movie report a month later. And he'll see five of them once a month, like in the off season, like three of them once a month, June, July, August kind of thing. Got it. What do you think? That'll be fun, Fez. Absolutely. During my like my like one of my numerous vacations, I'll be able to knock them all out. Right? Well, let, let's be cl- no 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 one a month. There's no knocking anything out. <laughs> it's instead of watching some crappy Big West game, you just put on. Because that's the thing. You might say, "Well, RJ, don't you love?" Yeah, I do love how dedicated Fez is or single-minded. But you know what? If you took ten percent of that and and read a few things outside of the box score. I think it gets you ready for the night. I, I do think there's a middle ground. If you're too tunnel visioned, you miss the forest from the trees. I think that's a great point. And having just being completely one dimensional, I don't think you're as strong as when you've got a good, at least um, some background in essentials outside of sports betting. Yeah, if you don't seem like that you're from another freaking planet, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> All right. So. Those teams, I mean, this is an obvious flow from here. Those teams that got to win, right, is 
I think at the semifinals, Fez, that's when it, they start being like, you know, if this team wins today and tomorrow, they're in. So, you know, this is a team that coming in. They, You know, North Carolina fits the bill here, but obviously they're so obviously the case that they have to win the tournament to get in. But any team that reaches the semis of the conference tournament that has no chance of an at-large bid, I think the public starts perking up. And especially if somehow, some way, they're not a big underdog, I think the public's going to be on them. You know, let's say they end up being a three-point dog to a team that's in and they might be a seventh or eighth seed. The sense is going to be, hey, that eighth seed potentially is in and this team needs to win. They got the the clear motivational edge. I think whenever it's that clear that the average handicapper, you know, the casual guy with a straight job, the idea that he's going to see the motivational edge means it's probably overpriced. I think that's well said. I I do think it's worth something, but it might only be worth half a point on the line. And oftentimes, I think it gets priced a lot more than that, that must win. So it's both bubble teams with Lenardi and whatever, and the must win with uh, you reach the semi. And in a way, we're talking two sides of a coin here, because the first topic was AJ and Fez going through the secret lack of motivation teams. So it could be that one of these must win teams are playing a lack of motivation team, and everyone's assessment's going to be right. But most of the time, teams are more – whatever the range of motivation is, I think that people think there's too many teams not motivated, meaning there's more motivated than people think, and vice versa. I think there's less teams unmotivated. It's just a lot of sports radio guys having to do topics, so they figure, do the blah, blah, really care, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, they do. They just want to win, right, most of the time. Yes, most of the time. Agreed. Except half your handicaps are crazy motivational edges. Seems to be working. Oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> this guy on a streak. Damn. We need some kind of knife sound effect. Oh, my God. Now, listen. <laughs> He's killing it. Listen, I like uh, insanely confident Fez, right? Because we're either going to win or we're going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I win either way. <laughs> I, you know something? I usually don't take aggression sitting down regardless if it's justified. But I'm going to just sit down and say, tip of the hat, Fez. It was the right time to do that. Me not being in the studio for one, not having all my sound effects. Pick your battles. Oh, it was a good battle. You just paid. Kudos. I still remember it, though. All right. (laughs) This one's a little more nuanced, so we'll make it quick. Fez, North Carolina, and we kind of talked about everybody knows that they got to win. And you're thinking, hey... This is a situation where usually the team might be underrated in a way because like people don't fully realize, you know, I guess it could go a lot of different directions. How would you, and again, this, these are nuanced points. How would, where do you put North Carolina in the mix here? Cause I think it's the three different concepts all kind of interplay. So why don't you lay it out first? Yeah. North Carolina is complex because they're certainly a must win team. Got to win all their games to go to the big dance. They got a losing record. However, North Carolina season got train wrecked about six games ago. Remember they went, I think two and eight in close games and they were doomed back at the end of February, knowing the only way they could make the tournament was to win their conference tournament. So we've seen a North Carolina team that really lacked in motivation the past five or six games. Now that they're in the, the conference tournament. So you just hit on it. I'm sorry I lost it. I didn't have it as clear in my mind. We, we are saying pretty strongly 
that if a team, if a casual fan is going to say this is a must-win spot, that they're probably overrated, whoever they are. We're saying that if it's a must-win the conference tournament, teams usually are crappy that must-win the conference tournament, and thus they're not going to be public teams. There's not going to be a real perception of them being must-win until they get to, or maybe they know they must win. No one cares until it becomes viable right. to win the tournament, right? Semifinals. But North Carolina is a rare team that there's such a blue blood. The fact that they must win a, starts at the very beginning of the tournament because everyone knows they got to win out. So they're probably overpriced in every way with that one factor due to the must win. But here's the other factor. Because they got eliminated from an at-large bid before the end of the season, they had, in this case, what, five, six, seven games with questionable motivation. Thus, their performance might not be indicative of how good they really are. Exactly, RJ. And frankly, we've seen the public, I know not the public, we've seen the wise guys backing North Carolina twice already in the ACC tournament. Round one, they got bet up by a point and a half. And then round two, I don't think I've ever seen this before. Uh, We're taping this on Wednesday. This is a Wednesday night game, late game. North Carolina is 6-14 and in conference. They played last night, so... Syracuse had a bye, and North Carolina's laying three to a 10-10 and 10 Syracuse team. You don't see that every day. No, and um, hmm. I think it's I, – personally, I know Dave liked Syracuse. I like Syracuse because the only thing that recommends North Carolina is the idea that for a handful of games at the end of the year, maybe their motivation was a question. But the team that got eliminated as an at-large team – I mean, I know they lost a lot of close games, so yeah, maybe it is mitigating. But they still were teams that lost a lot of games. Yeah, and even if they had won four more of those close games, they'd still only have the same record in conference as Syracuse. Uh, Yeah, looking at that game specific. But what I'm saying is the case can be made that North Carolina is underrated because of all the close losses. Yes. Case can be made they're overrated in this spot because everyone's cognizant of them being a must-win. Yes. So... And the case could be made that they're underrated because the very end of the season isn't indicative of their true level. Right. Complex. A lot going on with the Tar Heels. <laughs> Just like with your winning and your fucking <laughs> balls around it. Damn. All right. I don't think I've ever done this. I feel like i got to start coming back, but I don't want to throw you off your game because you're so hot. XFL, unfreaking defeated like Andre the Giant. All right, that's it for college basketball, except for best bets. Oh, I got one more, RJ. Oh, go ahead. I want to talk about these bubble teams in terms of totals. Oh, all right, you're right. I'm sorry. So, but let me set this up clearly. These aren't bubble teams as much, but rather all scenarios. So conference finals only, right, in which that if there's there's four, well, I guess three possible scenarios. Both teams are in the tournament. And thus winning is only about seeding and, and wanting to win the conference tournament. All right. Neither team is in at, at large effectively. And these are speculations, right? Lenardi. And then the third is one's in and one's out. doesn't matter which one it is. It's one and one. Do you agree with that? Yes. The one and ones we don't even address here. Correct. All right. So if there's one team in at large, one team not, that's a different handicap. Let's start both. Teams are in regardless. Finals of the conference. 
All right. So when both teams are in the big dance and they've won two or three games, they're in the finals of their conference tournament, oftentimes it's a happy action, fun game. The players are feeling good. The coaches are feeling good. And they roll the ball out there and it becomes a very high scoring game because there's no pressure on the players. Yeah, they want to win. Both teams want to win. But it's also a showcase game for what has been a great weekend for both the teams. I actually just figured it out, Matt. Cut, I want you to cut up his comeback to me. Give me about 30 seconds before, 30 seconds after. And then when he's on mousy most of the time, I'm going to play that for him. So that's how I'll get him. All right? Okay. All right. I was just – I didn't even hear what you said. No, I heard you. So I agree with you. Um, and, and I think the more years that go by, the more I agree with this because I think kids are more inclined to want to – you know, the let's just say old school basketball is less and less – prevalent and that's if they do feel especially freed up you know it's behind the back you know i'm not saying globetrotter stuff but close absolutely the other scenario sure the other scenario is neither team is in it is a must win in both directions yeah, now we're looking at a situation where with both teams needing the game like blood, they're going to bring maximum effort, and you're going to see a defensive scrum, a rock fight oftentimes, where neither team's going to give an inch on defense. But you know what? The players on offense, they're going to be reluctant to shoot. They're going to want to get the best shot possible. They're not going to want to screw it up with the season on the line dependent upon one game. And oftentimes you see these games, especially in the first half, going way under. All right. Well, you threw that in at the very end. So let's let's drill into that. So for the over, it's just over for the game, right? Yes. When it's two teams both in, so they're playing for pride, playing for the title. Okay. But not for their lives. When there is two teams in a must win, we're thinking defense equals less scoring. We're thinking nerves equals less aggressiveness. But you have a theory, and I think this is the brilliant part of it. You have a theory, which is that this applies to the first half massively, but doesn't apply to the second. I don't think it's worth betting over in the second, but I think it's worth isolating the first half under. Explain why. Yeah, and the reason being is I would say that I would expect that the first 35 minutes of the 40 minutes of the game, I like under. The problem is the final So 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 we're adding complexity here. It's unnecessary. Hmm. Because you can't bet the first 40 minutes, right? You cannot. Or, or how many minutes did you say that you— I, I said 35 minutes because—and and you're right. Too much complexity. The first half is clean. Both teams playing super hard defensively, lower scoring. Nothing to mitigate this. Nothing to mitigate it. And what I'm hearing you in the second half say that for a lot of the second half, it's still the case, but then you get to the point where the team's got to decide a foul or not, and— all of that. Exactly right. Because right around the five-minute mark during a regular season game, RJ, when a team's down 18, that's a great under bet. They, most of the time, the team down 18, they're just going to go ahead. They know they're beaten, and it's going to be low scoring in the final five minutes. That is typically not the case in these must-win games. All hell breaks loose because the team that's behind knows they absolutely positively have to win that game. Here comes the half-court trap. Here comes the full-court press, and it's not unusual for a team to foul down 16 in the final 90 seconds. Great point. So. Let's go through one of the things we've been doing more of in the last year is trying to isolate the exposure you want. You want to make a bet on what can you find a way to make that the only thing you're betting on? And 
we try to abstract out or isolate those edges as we perceive them. First half unders seem pretty self-explanatory, but talk about the mechanics. When will a book typically have that up? Is there anything else you need to know? You know, if someone hasn't bet first half unders. Right. So typically books or overs, obviously. Oftentimes books will put up late at night, they'll put up the overnight line and it'll just be a total. They won't be a first half total. And then come game day, they'll go ahead and put up the first half total. And usually it's just by formula. And books tend to make the first half total about eight points expected to be lower than the second half. So example, the game total is 140. First half total would typically be 66. And the expectation being that the first half is going to be about eight points lower scoring than the second half. I'm a firm proponent that come conference tournament time, that model of expecting the first half to be about eight points lower scoring is not enough of an adjustment. I think that it's much more likely. Okay, but hold on a second. Mm -hmm. The starting point is to figure out what, because if you don't know if you're getting a good number or not, you can't make bets, right? So that's what power ratings are about, right? This is what the number's supposed to be. There's this factor I think is gigantic that's not in the power ratings, and the numbers matching my power ratings. That's a buy sign. Yes. Right? So let's start with mechanics of, and this will be quick, what should the line be? So if the total is 140 for the game, walk me through the math of what the first half over-under should be. Okay, if it's a regular season game, first half six. I don't know. Hold on, hold on. It, regular season doesn't matter. I'm not talking about the handicap. I'm talking about the mechanics of – the bookmaker. 66, first right, half. Walk me through the math, please. Okay, so the math is that we 70 points in each half would be just dividing by two, but the first half would be four points lower scoring on average, and the second half would be four points higher scoring. Okay, so that's how you split up the eight, is you attribute four to the first half, which makes sense, four to the second. And thus, you would say then 70 minus four equals 66. Yes. Okay, so if the number comes in at 66... You feel like, hey, you're getting a fair number if the total is 140. Does it matter if the total is extra low or extra high? Because it seems like the higher the total, the more that eight points would grow. I mean, eight out of 160 points and eight out of 115 doesn't seem right, right, based on extreme total. The reason the eight actually is pretty darn accurate, regardless of the total, is that it's really just the final four minutes and the fouling that, that causes that second half to be so much higher scoring. Okay, so that's how you can say what the total should be. So really, the short answer is divide the game total by two and subtract four points. Yes. The the eight gets a little confusing, but we got to the bottom of it. All right, Steve, I got to say, I don't have my drops in front of me, but the only in dreams would be warranted right now. Great stuff. Anything else before best bats in the colleges? I'm good, RJ. All right, so let's do this. We're going to do the college. Let me see. We got Lakers taught. Yeah, we got some NBA. Let's do our best bets. Then we'll do a little NBA after. Our gal, Maddie, I want Blossom. You know who would have been wooing Blossom in the day? Diamond Dave. Diamond Dave Esler. Why Diamond Dave? Because the only reason he could be Diamond Dave is because he's making a bunch of money. He looks like an accountant. And I'm not talking about, <laughs> I said this is straight out of it. It's not the Ben Affleck accountant. 
But he wins money. Like He has a stack like him. Let's say that. He's got a Cinderella. And this is for the tournament now. So an early look. This is a team he thinks that can do some real damage. Let's listen. Since we don't have a full weekend slate, I'm going ahead and going right into the tournament. I like and I am going to bet Utah State next week regardless. They're not a team on too many radars. That's understandable. They play in the Mountain West Conference, which was dominated by the court and especially the media by San Diego State all season. For starters, the Aggies can draw an experience, which they didn't have last year as an eight seed. They were trounced early by Washington. Before conference play this year, they beat LSU, they beat Florida. So not only do they have good wins, they played a strong schedule. The Aggies' tempo is in the middle somewhere, so they can match up with anyone. They're a superior free-throw shooting team that just doesn't beat themselves. And most importantly, they are the 10th biggest team in the nation. Sam Merrill can light it up from behind the arc. and He's a nightmare point guard at 6'5". Four of their five starters shoot over 53%. So they're super balanced, not a team that relies on anyone that an opposing team can just take out of the game. They're currently projected as a 10 seed, which I think is low, but that will keep the attention off them even more. I think Utah State has all the potential to be a Cinderella team, and my money does too. Diamond Dave. Oh, I'll have to get Diamond Dave, David Lee Roth. Oh, God, yes. Oh, because remember, Esther's in the second week of the tournament. Oh, that's going to – he is going to – he'll be smirking. He'll be like biting his lips. will get really small when he tightens his face. It's hilarious. You actually like this pick, Faz, Utah State. Yeah, I do. So Utah State hit a game-winning three to win the Mountain West Conference, and they were squarely on the bubble. They needed the game, and it was against a top-five team in San Diego State. Normally with such a big win, RJ, you would expect the team to celebrate and celebrate for a good two, three, four days, and all of a sudden, boom, they'd have to play in the big dance and maybe not have the right amount of preparation and maybe too much celebration. But because Utah State already punched their ticket early this week, they've got more than a week to go ahead and celebrate that huge win, one of the biggest wins in the program, and now be focused for the big dance. So what you're saying is because the tournament was earlier, it gives them some extra days. And even if there was somehow they had a big win, but it wasn't a guaranteed berth, they'd have the celebrate, then anxiety, then another celebration if you're true, you know, it being like you said, the ticket punched with a nice lead time, all it takes away the potential negatives. Exactly. Speaking of taking away negatives, how's your record in the XFL? Nine zero oh, and one. So that reminds me of another undefeated giant. I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna let you. You were banned from doing Andre the Giant imitations years ago. I mean, just for our ratings. I'm gonna give you as long as you keep winning. Just this, I'm talking about the podcast. If as long as you're undefeated from here on on the pod, I'm going to let you do one imitation of Andre a week. I love it. Let's go back to 1983. Oh, put this in context. And Andre staring down Hogan, and what does he say? Don't you remember Hogan? Ah, still undefeated. Thank God I'm batting a lot on these games because that was painful. (laughs) What do you got? All right, XFL Saturday, 2 p.m. Pacific time, St. Louis, Tampa Bay, going to the total. We are going over 42. We played Tampa Bay to go over last week, and that game, RJ, went over by 34 points. 
Tampa Bay's offense is massively undervalued. That Tampa Bay offense was terrible the first two weeks, averaged six points. How bad was it? Well, Mark Tressman, the head coach for Tampa Bay, he went ahead and said, I'm not going to call the plays anymore. He fired himself, ceded the play calling to the offensive coordinator. Since then, Tampa Bay has been a juggernaut on offense, averaging 29 points the last three weeks. And St. Louis will be focused this week on offense. Somehow they were held, St. Louis was, to six points last week. That was after three straight games of 23 or more points. Tiamu is a really good quarterback for St. Louis. So St. Louis's offense in a really good spot to bounce back. And the Tampa Bay offense, massively undervalued. Both offenses to improve. That puts us on the over 42 St. Louis-Tampa Bay. You know, I love that you got the guts to go back to the wow. That's one of my weak spots. I'm so apprehensive about, well, the cat's out of the bag. And that's back to power numbers. If you trust what the, if you, if you can't say this is what this number should be without my factor or factors, meaning this is the public perception. And here's my insight. You know, when you have a startup, one of the key questions is maybe it's the question. What is your key insight? So Google said, hey, we think there's a better way to rank search returns. Social proof should be the driver. Link, link value, all that stuff. Okay. That was an insight that led them to a second insight, which was, hey, there's no better way to find out what someone wants to buy than what they're searching for. That's keywords. Any business super successful had a key insight that others didn't agree with or were not able to execute on. In a handicap, you have an insight. You're saying because of this reason, this team's offense is underrated. And you know how much you believe that insight to be worth. And you know what you think the total should be. But you got to be able to say what the total should be without that insight, meaning the market is either accounting for this or they're not. And we see this all the time, Fez, like with a zigzag. The zigzag works in the NBA playoffs if you're just talking about does it increase the chance of that team to win the game. But when a line is six in game one and the home team wins by 20 and the line goes to five, (laughs) right? It's like this team just dominant. Then it's like, okay, you know it works, but you know it's being accounted for. Yeah, now I've got the team that's gotten their butt kicked two straight games. They're not as good as their opponent, and they're home. And because the spot's so good, they're suddenly laying five. The inferior team laying five. How much value can there possibly be? Yeah, and that's, that's the extreme case is when you have the double zigzag with that first home game in game three. So I agree with you, but all of this is about factors and are they accounted for. And let me ask you this. The total in this game is what? 42. What would it be if this game were played last week? Because your, your total last week was what, 41? Yeah, 40 it got up and to 41 and a half. Yeah, 40 and a half. Um, and I think. Well, it, I got to 41 and a half. I saw it. Got to, it got to 43 on game day. Okay. So what you're saying is. So that's interesting. The opponent last week or this week, would you think. Worst defense, you know, if you think about the opponent's role in the points, because really effectively this line is very similar week to week. Yes. And so how much better is this team on defense and how much worse are they on offense? L.A. and St. Louis are comparable teams offensively and defensively, but St. Louis does run the ball more than L.A. 
You're saying efficiently the same, but less pace. So you're saying all things equal, this line would be like a point and a half or two points less than last week. Yes. So really, we're effectively paying a couple of points here off of last week's performance. Yes, we are. But you are. But you think you now know the price, and you think buying. I'm buying still. Absolutely. Me, I get scared, right? Because I feel like I just. I guess I was raised on efficient market theory, and. Not with props. You know, that's one thing I've learned with props. They're usually just take it off the board after a while. But with these kind of – I guess XFL is very illiquid in a way too. So, hmm. All right. So how many – I know you don't know for sure. Maybe you do. How many late telephone picks will you have? You know, I don't know yet. I'm still doing a lot of my injury. What's your guess? What's the minimum? At least one. One. I will have one. All right. Because there's one game you already like that much. Yes. So it's what I would do. Reach out to Tom – and see, you know, I don't know what his current status with the packages is and stuff, but guys, I mean, he's not going to win every game. But you want to talk about a good bet, you're seeing it in front of your eyes. Pregame.com, you can get all his stuff. Packages have been reasonable. Give Tom a nudge. Make sure there's something up there, Fez. Let these guys get involved. Absolutely, RJ. All right. We got the hit, man. All of a sudden in the XFL. Have you been talking to him, Fez? Give, now, this is where you're helping him, I'm guessing. The, what we help each other. I got to be honest. The hitman and I, I text him more than my wife. <laughs> well, yeah. She costs you money. He makes you money. There's <laughs> a lot of truth to that. <laughs> and the funny thing is you can tell with Fez that you don't have to wonder about, is he uh, nice to me or not? If you're making him money, he's going to be nice to you. You're not. Nah, who knows? Fair to say? Fair to say. And, you know, and the hitman's like, he's texting me, and he's like, I'm in the hospital right now. I'm fine. But uh, let me get to this information. That dude is dedicated. You know, one quick 45-second story. My first out-of-town bookie. So I grew up in, you know, near Steubenville. A lot of bookies around, um, out of the mines and stuff. And But when I was, like, 18, I got a, a bookie out of Pittsburgh. Statue of limitations is up on this. And... He's, uh, I won't give his name, but nice guy. You want to talk funny? I bet with him, this is going to sound crazy. I bet with him almost every day for almost 20 years. It was about, yeah, it was about, yeah, until I moved to Vegas. And the, uh, I mean, he put a wing on his house. Oh, I mean, because he was just tackling, you know, he was taking my stuff. And, but what was nice is the guy he was putting into, so this guy was, you know, a front guy, not a front, but a middleman. But he loved it because I didn't have to deal with collecting or anything remotely. He'd send me, you know, the FedEx and stuff wrapped up. And sometimes I'd have to send it up. But this was a newspaper line guy he was putting into. But not really. The line would come out at 630. And he wouldn't move it at all. That was it. One line. Because he was reading it. This is 92, 93. Well, I guess I would have started in 88, 89. And in high, you know, in high school. So... I, was it 18? Or, I think I was a freshman in college. Either way. So the beauty is you got 55 minutes to edge. So what I would do, Fez, is I think I told the story one time, is I would uh, handicap myself and usually have four or five games I liked. And I would say anything that moved in my favor, I bet. Because I figure if I'm getting a half point, I'm almost, the VIG's gone almost at that point, right? And this is basketball mostly. You know, like I have the grind of that. And I'd usually have two or three picks. And... About every fifth pick, he'd give me a half point. He'd be like, I will bet this. And I was betting nickels. I'll bet this. 
at four and a half if it was four. And I'd only do that, you know, every fifth or sixth pick. But the beauty of it is this guy just didn't believe anyone could win. There was a generation. If you actually read about the uh, Tim Donahue stuff in uh, Game in the Game, I think was the book, they talk a lot about that, that there was a generation pre-offshore that they felt like no one could win. And thus, if you were winning, they were stubborn as all get out that you were just going to not win long term. And I wasn't really, I mean, to me, it felt reasonable to win. But I didn't, you know, I guess I didn't understand. And the funny thing is, in hindsight, the lines were so much softer back then. So it's like, no, I mean, I guess it shows you the dearth of information because they were so much softer and the bookies thought no one could win. And they obviously thought that because of a history. They, yeah, and what was interesting, I believe it was a Jack Moore that wrote the, the sports betting book, and he, he described your method as the blindfold method. Namely, if the, line, if the correct line is four and you can take five or lay three, go ahead and do it. Yeah, and that's, a diff- that's interesting because there's different people um, that look at a, a good way to figure out what the true market line is, and then you're picking off the rogue numbers, and in a way you're not handicapping but you're you're assessing the market and and then picking off the off market lines, which I think that that makes sense. But you end up spending so much time trying to get your outs because they do profile, and you can talk in this. Uh, we won't go too deep, Fez, but in general, all winners aren't created equal with books. They especially dislike guys picking off lines. Yeah, exactly right. So if all you're playing is, say, selective first half unders or only betting live wagering, if you've got one niche and that's all your wagers and you're winning, that's kind of a tell, a big-time tell to your bookmaker, hey, this is a customer you probably don't want. Whereas if you can spread it around and bet a whole bunch of different things, you look much more like every other customer that is losing with them, and you'll have a much longer lifetime with that bookie. Now, wouldn't you say, though, that they – in fact, I know that they do profiling on what the market was at the time you made the bet, and specifically if you're betting off numbers, meaning the world's at four, you took four and a half. That that is something they particularly figure it's going to be hard to beat this guy because he's only betting us in his things where he's almost removing the VIG. Now, why is their number at four and a half if they don't want to take a bet? I mean, they're, they're going to have to answer that. But they'd rather, I guess, give it to someone that's betting other things. Like, I guess that makes sense, right? If you got, like, 99-cent Pepsi, you don't mind someone buying one, but you don't want someone coming in there and just buying those. Yeah, stocking up on the old two liters, exactly right. And I think Billy Walters was a master. What he would do is every now and then he would just give um, some of his guys one select bet. He wouldn't bet it anywhere else, just at a market number so it looks square. Hey, this guy bets 10 dimes on a game that he's laying four and it's four everywhere and the line isn't moving at all and didn't move at tip-off or kickoff. And, you know, camouflage and, you know, Billy's genius was not only camouflaging his stuff, but actually making it so the people who were moving for him didn't really know if it was the right move or not, and thus their ability to then spread it around, he could use that against him. When he found someone that was giving the stuff to other people and it was running, he would use that for to dummy it up. So uh, certainly a master at, at many things. Okay. We were talking about the hitman. We got a pick from him. He's a young guy. His name's Tommy. He's in his 20s. He lives in Jersey. He's a school teacher. Is he still teaching or is he off this year? Substitute teaching. Yeah, he's a substitute teacher. <laughs> and 
he's a future superstar. I think it's fair to say he's in that next coming generation where we love cultivating. He's not from the Ivy Leagues, but we love cultivating talent wherever we find it. The Hitman, let's listen. All right, XFL, best bet this season, hitting 80%. And we're looking to improve on that number on Sunday night football, the LA Wildcats. We're going to go with a money line, minus 130 against the Seattle Dragon. The LA Wildcats are undervalued from early in the season, and they're clicking on all cylinders, especially on offense. And that's without the second best receiver in the XFL, Nelson Spruce, who might play this week. If L.A. closed minus seven against the Guardians, I see no way that this line could be anything less than at least minus five at Seattle. Not only is L.A. better than Seattle, which the line is indicating, but I think they're significantly better. On the year, they're plus 0.4 in yards per play, while Seattle is negative 0.8 in yards per play differential. And L.A., as we said earlier, is undervalued because Josh Johnson was injured for the first half of the season. Plus, L.A.'s point differential this year, plus 7, Seattle, minus 32. Bigger discrepancy in these two teams that the odds makers are indicating. Love L.A. this week. All right, Faz, give a quick comment. Really like that pick, and the reason being is not going to be any fans in Seattle. So normally, you don't want to bet against a football team in Seattle in that, I think it's called Quest Field, one of the biggest home field advantages in the NFL and the XFL. But how big of a home field is Seattle going to have when there aren't going to be any fans in the stands? All right, we're shifting gears. Back next week, but remember, we got uh, NBA coming up, maybe 10, 15 minutes, that's it. Of content, quick uh, next week though we're taping Tuesday early. We'll be up by Wednesday, crack of dawn, NCAA tournament, and then next week, and we'll we'll do something between the first and second round. We'll figure out how we do that, and then another big podcast, big big big, the next week. We'll probably do that Tuesday also, so everyone has a nice extra, nice leisurely day to take it in. Though it's easier on. The second week, because the games don't start till night. But still, I got 90 seconds on the ankle. For the first time, I have a cane. I've never been on crutches. I was on crutches once. Oh, my God, that was a nightmare. Like, for four weeks. I, I mean, they, they, this was a basketball ankle. And I'm telling you, I was like 24. And I'm telling you right now, they say that it's better to break it. That is true in some cases. High ankle sprain. And you know how they say, like, five weeks for someone? I, w- I don't think I'm right still <laughs> in that ankle, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, all the training and the, the pools and all that, didn't have access to that around Steubenville. But <laughs> for the first time, I'll just say two things, just plain. For the first time, I had to make a choice. So I, I got up the steps, and I looked left, and I saw my Sour Patch Kids. And one of the things <laughs> that... I've done on my little weight reduction here is I'm allowing myself some sweets to, you know, to satiate yourself, but they're not high calorie. And I mean, it's not like I have these little Zotz candies, for example. So I don't mind having a little bit of sweet to kind of say enough, you know, I'm, I've, you tell your stomach you're done eating. Cause if you just eat those carbs, Oh my God, I used to eat spaghetti. Like it was gone out of style, but then I had to look over and it was like six steps away. So I weighed it and I said, that's 12, right? Because it's six steps one way, six steps back. Then I'm just where I was to start with. 
Now, you take it for granted. I certainly do that walking six steps and back is nothing typically, right? Don't take your mobility for granted. (laughs) And I think you know I went and got the Sour Patch Kids. Had a big handful. Oh, that sour squirts. mm. Number two, for the first time in my life, I used my cane to avoid, I'm not going to say my cane, a cane that will be gone in a day or two is to avoid extra steps. You ever see people that are trying to turn off lights and shit with their cane? <laughs> I was I was walking and I had to close the door because the fridge door wasn't closed and I put out my cane and swung it shut. I actually felt a sense of accomplishment there. It doesn't even out from the Sour Patch steps, but almost. And then, and then, <laughs> I had a strange urge to eat an early dinner. <laughs> Yeah, no one gets that. Like the no, no, like the early bird special in Florida oh, with the white shoes. Mm. Seinfeld, you remember ah, the joke when they went down? He goes, "You eating at five fifteen? Uh, see, I need a more advanced. Audience. I, I'm guessing a lot of the we got a smart audience. I think a lot of the listeners got that. I'm kind of disappointed in you, Matt. I'm sorry, I, my Seinfeld knowledge is horrible, but. The idea that the early bird special, the bluebird special, there's a reason they call it the bluebird special. I don't, I don't think Seinfeld was required to get that. Yeah, yes. that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it was so obvious that Seinfeld did a whole show, like an episode around it. <laughs> yeah, it's and, Bo- and Boca. It's true. I'll be honest. I'm preoccupied with a uh, breaking news report that I wanted to cut in and talk to you about. Always working. Oh yeah, really. What's the news? And NBA has suspended the season after Gobert was diagnosed with COVID-19. What? Yeah. They suspended the entire season? Yeah, ESPN has it. NBA suspends season until further notice after player tests positive for coronavirus. Is this going to void my season win bets? Well, I guess it matters how many ga- I guess it matters what how many games there are. Yeah. That they ah. play. But I think suspends is the wrong. I mean, the, what they're saying is is the true because when you hear suspend the season, there's always a sense that it's not going to resume. Until further notice. Yeah. But you know something? The thing people don't realize is they might, or some people don't realize, they might have thought that it's like, why are they canceling the Final Four this far ahead? They don't. This is just, whatever degree it is now, it gets worse probably for a couple months. You know, is what everyone I'm hearing, you know, again, I watch a good bit of news. And, you know, the the experts, so I don't know if I'm mishearing it some way, but just the way it two becomes four becomes, you know, that exponential growth, it, it's going to reach its mass. At some point, everyone that could get it effectively, you know, because some people are just more susceptible to that than others, though under that theory, it wouldn't matter if you're in big venues. But soon enough, everyone's going to be acting under these assumptions, you know, of avoiding that stuff. And then people are going to either get it or not. And then there's going to be some type of, you know, but the thing they say is it's going to be 18 months before they have a vaccine. I don't know how this goes. Maybe we just got to watch Seinfeld and and talk about the more innocent days. I think we do. Yeah. I think we start our movie report early. (laughs) Well, listen, it's It's certainly going to make the NCAA tournament even more of a focus. But so they're, they're not even having the empty games. They're saying that, you know what I'm guessing is going to happen? They take a week or so. 
And you know, if there's a time to miss, it's the NCAA tournament, right? This is, I mean, let's be a little Machiavellian here, yeah. right? Is between now and the Monday after this Monday, so 12 days is the time that the NCAA takes attention from NBA more than any other. Or what you say, Fez? Yes. So I'm not saying that's the only reason, obviously, but whatever the cause, if, if they could delay the season, in a way, if every year they took like a, you know, extended all-star break, they can't make it that late. But if they took like a break, you know how hockey has a, a break or whatever, if they took like a two-week break and pushed everything two weeks in the July or whatever, I think they probably do better business-wise. You know what I'm reading, though? I, I agree with you, but it says NBA suspends remainder of season. That can't be. That cannot be. I'm shocked. I'm saying that can't be. Well, I'm, I'm reading that now. NBA announced it has suspended its season until further notice after complications with Jazz player Rudy Gobert. NBA player NBA said it will use hiatus to determine next steps moving forward. Yeah, yeah, this is a hiatus. I mean, in this way, they can make sure no one else has it. Then they can talk about all the precautions, play in front of no fans for, for as, as long as they need to. You know what I don't understand? And listen, I'm no doctor. Fez MD even isn't a doctor. Is Unless you're really old, am, am I missing something that this is a bad version of the flu? And if you're old or compromised, it can, you know, just like the flu itself can be, um, you know, terminal. Or it can kill you. The one thing I think that makes it different is that you can spread this disease before you show any symptoms. Yeah. But so what I'm saying is if everyone get, but, but you, I mean, with the flu, you don't know if your food preparer has symptoms. I mean, so we're all being exposed to stuff every day. That's true. So it, the only thing can be the severity of it. And the, you know what's funny? If, it's, if this didn't start in China or, you know, China representing some faraway place. That we, you know, we don't we're a little bit suspicious of as a country, and and it doesn't. It's not about China. It's about you know pretty much anywhere other than America and a few other places. We're gonna be like, really, that food came from there. And if this was just a bad ver, and if it didn't have virus in the name, you gotta. And maybe I'm I'm not saying I'm sure of this, but you gotta want. If this was just called uh, a strain of the flu that's really bad, I wonder if we'd be acting like this. Well, the mortality rate's higher for. COVID-19, for everybody over 50, it goes from 0.1 for the flu to 1.3%. Okay, but 1.3, that's blending all the real old timers. But from 50 to 60, what is it? From 60, you know, 70 and above, I hear you. And I get it. Well, for 50 to 59, it's 1.3. 60 to 69, 3.6. Okay, hold on a second. 50 to 59, you're saying one out of 70 people die. 1.3%. All right. That's for us. And what is it for the regular flu? Point one. So it's 13 times. That's what it looks like. Maybe that's a little, because I didn't think one out of 70 people, maybe I didn't hurt my ankle. I just don't be, want to be around you guys. <laughs> that would be smart. <laughs> Luckily, we don't have a lot of traffic. Jesus. And we got people, we got a bunch of people flying in next week, supposedly. <laughs> well, listen, if they come in, you know how dedicated they are. You know, I mean, we'll skip the NBA talk, obviously, but isn't that interesting? If I was, uh, who was that player Go Bear got tangled up with <laughs> just recently? They both got suspended. 
Yeah, I don't know. Why. Maybe you guys can look that up. The interesting thing was Gobert was just so vocal about, well, next time that happens, um, they're going to have something to write about. So No, he said, I'll get my own justice. Yeah. It's just, so uh, what do you think? Is this God saying Gobert and the Frenchman are no good? <laughs> Is that your implication? All right. You guys got a flavor of what it's like in the office now. <laughs> the show's better. All right. It was uh, OG Anobi from uh, England, so European on European violence. <laughs> So, um, we'll, uh, obviously, the NCAA has already made their move, so I don't think anything's going to be affected. Who knows, though? But either way, we'll follow the plan. And if somehow we don't, I'll tweet it out at RJ in Vegas. Fez, you got your XFL. I think we covered everything now that we're taking out the NBA, right? Yes, we did. All right, guys, wash your hands. Be safe. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to RJ Bell's Dream Preview. Catch the Wise Guy Roundtable each week. College football released on Wednesday. NFL on Thursday. Don't miss any winners. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit podcastone.com and download the Podcast One app. Have a question for RJ? You can contact him directly on Twitter at RJ in Vegas. Live the dream with us each week.